a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hey there. Welcome to the show. Let's see. Where shall we begin today? I guess we could start with a nice pithy uh, T-shirt. Thanks to my friend Blake for posting this. You know what's wrong with society today? No one drinks from the skulls of their enemies anymore. I know. It's a little bit dark, but you know what? We live in dark times, so I'm going to run with it. Anyhow, thanks for joining us. We've got some great stuff ahead this hour. We're going to be talking a little bit about uh, the dangers of keeping schools closed. I know this is on a lot of people's minds. Uh, my wife is a public school teacher, and we've been looking over some of the conditions and the plan for how to get the schools open. It's, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to be kind as I say this, but it's going to be very different. Not only for the students, but for the faculty as well. Um, it's it's a whole different ball game. And for those areas that are that are actually kind of going back into lockdown, there's a question as to whether they're going to open their schools at all. I found a great commentary from Ethan Yang. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research about the dangers of keeping the schools closed. That kind of sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? Right. I mean, if there's a terrible virus going around, we're trying to protect everybody from the spread of the virus. Why packing kids into a classroom would be the worst thing you could do or so you might think. But let's consider the broader picture. Ethan Yang says, as the school year approaches, there's a lot of consideration over whether or not to close the K-12 system in an effort to slow the spread of COVID-19. Now, these concerns come from a wide variety of constituencies, from parents to public officials to teachers. However, much like the overall discussion regarding COVID-19, this proposal is ill-informed and will likely lead to unintended consequences that will be far more severe than the problem it seeks to address. See, that's where he caught my attention. We're not just looking at what's seen, but also examining what is unseen. School closures, you realize, of course, are a time-sensitive policy. And Ethan Yang says one of the first points to consider when approaching the question of closing schools is timing. Yale University sociologist Nicholas Christakis, a proponent of school closure, warns that although the policy could be beneficial, it has to be done very early. Furthermore, Dr. Christakis certainly supports school closure if done at the correct time, but he acknowledges that now it's sort of like closing the barn door after the cow is gone. And this maneuver, even for those that support it, will be incredibly difficult to do effectively, and the appropriate time to even consider this policy may well have been back in January and not in July. So it seems that proponents of school closure also seem to misunderstand the purpose of their proposal. Italian epidemiologist Marco Ahele, I hope I'm saying his name right, says that uh, he tells NPR closing schools can only buy time and delay the peak of an epidemic. And according to Ethan Yang, unfortunately, that time has passed as well. Much like anything else concerning COVID-19 and epidemiology, we can't be certain that closing schools will actually delay the peak of an epidemic. Even if it's an effective policy measure, school closures are not intended for simply reducing cases among children. They're a way to buy time to prepare for the climax of an outbreak. As outlined by Dr. Christakis' sentiments, the time for this conversation should have been months ago. 
It may have been an effective policy to buy time for hospitals to retool and prepare for the outbreak, but that has since been accomplished, although rather sloppily. The peak of the pandemic has passed. COVID-related deaths have dramatically decreased, and hospitals are far more prepared than they were months ago. Closing schools may actually hurt children more than it protects them from COVID-19. See, when it comes to protecting the health of children, sending them to school could possibly be the safest option. Sonia Santelises, CEO of Baltimore Public Schools, tells NPR, for a large number of our students, the safest place for them to be is actually in school. Schools provide a number of things that would be advantageous to the well-being of a child. Being at school places children in a controlled environment, which in some neighborhoods could be better for more problems besides infection control. Children are also the least vulnerable to COVID-19. Professor Peter Colignon, an Australian microbiologist and infectious disease physician, writes in The Guardian, quote, The data from a range of countries shows that children rarely, and in many countries never, have died from this infection. Children appear to get infected at a much lower rate than those who are older. There's no evidence that children are important in transmitting the disease, end quote. Furthermore, Ethan Yang says a paper published by medical experts at Colorado State University and Yale University says what we know about social distancing policies is based largely on models of influenza, where children are a vulnerable group. However, preliminary data on COVID-19 suggests that children are a small fraction of cases and may be less vulnerable than older adults. Even The Atlantic offers some additional insight on why children seem to be at lower risk of contracting COVID-19. The Atlantic reports, everything an infant sees or a young child sees is new. That's Donna Farber, an immunologist at Columbia University. Thus, their immune system is primed to fight new pathogens in a number of ways. This is why adults are able to mount a rapid immune response to previously encountered pathogens, but also why they might have trouble fighting a new one. Diseases such as rubella and chickenpox are also, for various reasons, more severe in adults than in children. Now, Andrew, or Ethan Yang, rather, sorry, not the presidential candidate, the, the, the writer, Ethan Yang says, the CDC echoes this assertion that children are at a lower risk of COVID-19, not only in the mortality rate, which is extremely rare, but also in the infection rate. Furthermore, online teaching in its current state would not deliver the same results as an in-person experience. If schools intend to stay closed for any substantial amount of time, that could be incredibly detrimental for young students. In fact, Professor Colignon from, uh, from Australia writes, many will likely miss out on over six months of teaching. Now, while online teaching might be available, it's unlikely to be as effective as face-to-face -face teaching, and those with less resources will be disproportionately disadvantaged. Minimal or no mixing with their friends and other children for over six months will also have deleterious effects. Ethan Yang says many teachers will have little or no aptitude for effectively running online classes. Disadvantaged students, such as those with troubled families or low socioeconomic status, will be most harmed by the school closures. In particular, many parents will need to take time off from work to care for their children, and for many, this will be impossible. And when considering the child care needs of health care workers, closing schools may actually lead to an increase in mortality rates, not just for COVID patients, but sick individuals more broadly. Congruent with AIER's observation that the converse conversation surrounding COVID seems to be utterly blind to the trade-offs of lockdown measures, Jude Baham and Eli Finical write that school closures come with many trade-offs, setting aside economic costs, 
School closures implemented to reduce COVID-19 spread uh, create unintended child care obligations, which are particularly large in health care occupations. According to their raw data, about 15% of registered nurses, 19.14% of diagnostic-related technicians and technologists, as well as 14.45% of EMT and paramedics, will be unable to meet their child care obligations with the help of a non-working adult or sibling. That's just to name a few. Now, much like all models and calculations, the true percentage of total health care professionals that will be forced to take time off from work isn't certain. However, what we can be certain about is that closing schools will impose child care obligations on health care workers that will lead to a reduction in overall medical staff. Now, the drawbacks of such a decision, the most important being an increase in mortality rates due to lack of medical professionals, can only be estimated with models. And these models, much like those used by epidemiologists to predict COVID-19 deaths and spread, have to rely on assumed values and equations that seek to imitate reality. So as a result, we can't be certain whether the result will be more or less severe. Also, Ethan Yang warns that closing schools will exacerbate existing economic calamity. A report published by the Brookings Institution states, we find that closing all schools in the U.S. for four weeks could cost between 10 and $47 billion dollars that's uh, 0.1 or to 0.3% of the GDP and lead to a reduction of 6% to 19% in key healthcare personnel. Now, these should be conservative, in other words, low economic estimates in that earnings rather than total compensation are used to calculate costs. Now, that's only assuming that schools will be closed for four weeks or not until 2021, which many advocate or in some cases have already done. Much like shutting down the economy and labeling some businesses non-essential has unleashed a wide range of predicted as well as unpredicted consequences, you can be sure that closing schools will do the same. So the question that comes to mind, are the trade-offs worth it? As the 2021 academic year approaches, closing K-12 education, switching to remote learning, that's on the minds of many. And those who advocate for this decision have to come to terms with a number of important trade-offs that come with it. Some of those may be more apparent than others. Closing schools can, will certainly be detrimental to the education and social needs of a generation of children. So closing schools will probably spare some children from infection, but whether it will be enough to justify what has to be sacrificed in return, that's another question entirely. Now, I understand for some people it's, you know, this is, this is more clear cut. But I have to applaud Ethan Yang for looking at the bigger picture, not only what's immediately apparent, but would all, what could also be affected in the meantime. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Let's jump into the culture wars. Uh, maybe you noticed earlier this week, look, I'm not a huge NFL fan, but uh, but I have a brother-in-law who is a massive fan of the uh, Washington Redskins. In fact, I have a baseball cap that I proudly wear that, you know, bears their logo, and it's in his honor. I, you know, I don't really have a dog in that fight, but, you know, what's really interesting is the Washington Redskins have officially announced we are going to change the name. 
Now, you're going to hear in just a moment, uh, uh, what's the guy's name? It, it was, I believe it was one of the, the team owners or one of the, one of the big wigs with their organization saying, we will never change the name Washington Redskins. Well, that was a little premature. It did happen. And the question that should be on people's minds, or at least the, I know is on my mind, is why? Why did it have to change? Is it just, you know, the culture is so woke that they had no choice? And interestingly enough, I think the, the, the story is it's not the NFL fans who were advocating for this change in the first place. In fact, it was, it was the, the big finance. It's the big money that said, look, this change is going to happen. And, and I just share this as, as an illustration. Corporate America has definitely cast its lot with woke society. Take that as you will. I don't know why they choose to do so, but that is the way that it's going. And what this means is uh, basically you work for any, you know, in any part of corporate America. There's some leverage being applied to you to toe the line. We'll talk more about that in just a few moments. But I want you to hear what uh, Burgess Owens had to say on how big finance, as opposed to NFL fans, forced Washington Redskins to change their name. This is a report from Fox News. Uh, I believe this was uh, day before yesterday. We're never going to change the name of the Washington Redskins. Uh, and I think from a bottom line perspective, uh, what it means is tradition, what it means is competitiveness, what it means is honor. Never say never. Washington's NFL team is changing its name under major financial pressure from corporate sponsors like FedEx. As the Washington Post points out tonight, while there is considerable evidence that Native American and progressive elites wanted the change, a majority, possibly a large majority of Native Americans themselves had no specific problem with the Redskins name or logo. Some worry the underlying original message of justice for people like George Floyd earlier this year, that that message is now getting lost in the resulting protests and cancel culture. What's happening now, uh, this, it, we turn it into a circus. Uh, you know, we're going to spend all our time, instead of talking about racial equality and racial justice and economic justice, we spend all our time worried about who's kneeling and who's not kneeling, uh, what, what things are being said on buses. Uh, what's being said on jerseys, I think we're missing the point. My concern is just turning this thing into a circuit instead of trying to do some good stuff. Let's bring in former NFL safety and GOP congressional candidate Burgess Owens. Good to have you back with us tonight. Same as Shannon. Looking forward to it. Okay, so let's start there. Charles Barkley, a huge NBA star, sports star in his own right, now saying, uh, listen, the original message was about uh, the what they view as inequality and uh, police injustice and brutality, the George Floyd case. We've branched off into so many other places now with renaming things, um, cancel culture, taking down statues. Some people think some of that's very positive. Some of it is getting too far off the path that we're losing the message about George Floyd, his life, uh, and others who've been in the same situation um, and have sadly lost everything and lost their lives. Uh, what do you think about where we are in this stew of different messages now? Well, a couple of things. Uh, it, it never has really been for the left, uh, George Floyd. They've been trying to find a place to divide us, and this has been a good spot for them. I'll say the thing about uh, people like Charles myself. Now, Charles is a Democrat. I'm a Republican. Guess what? We love our country, and we both have what I call common sense and critical thinking. And I think that's where American is going to approach this. They're going to look at this, this bigger picture, and see just what they are truly drawn toward. And it's not destructiveness. It's not tearing down buildings and burning up uh, businesses. It's coming together and being harmonious. I'll say this also about this 
this, uh, this rescue thing. This has been a progressive goal for years. This is not something new. They just continue to go at it. Ask yourself, what have they done for the American Indian over the last five, six years, whatever it's been? They still have most poverty, um, um, uh, suicide, alcoholism, unemployment, illiteracy, all the things that bring misery. These people have done nothing for those people because they don't care about the people. Just like BLM which is based on Marxism, do not really care about black lives, all black lives. So I think Americans are going to get it. And uh, we're, just, we're just not into hatred and destructiveness. We're drawn toward freedom, opportunity. And so we're going to do the right thing. Now that the gray is gone, we see what we really have is a very, very dark leftist and a very positive, uplifting, hopeful America on the, on the right uh, with, with President Trump. Okay. So let's talk, let's talk about this specific issue with uh, regard to the Redskins. Raymond Halbritter, who is a representative of the Oneida Indian Nation, said this today. Right now, the Washington team's name is a racial slur. That's what we asked them to change, and that's what they're changing. Uh, there are those who are very skeptical about why Dan Snyder is doing this now. The Washington Post says the biggest lesson is the power of money. Seeing that the protests were prompting big companies to speak out against racism, six money management firms drafted a letter calling on FedEx, Nike, and Pepsi to take a public stand against the team's name. They asked other investment managers to sign on as well. Within a week, they had more than 85 firms representing more than $600 billion in assets. So we know there are those within the Native American community who found that this was a slur. They were hurt and offended by this. That's been going on for a long time. But this piece in The Washington Post says it looks like it's really the financial pressure that finally got to Dan Snyder. What do you think? Well, first of all, 90%, over 90% of American Indians are okay with the name. They, they see it uh, as, a, as a, a place of pride, to be honest with you. So it's never, it's never has been um, the, the American Indians, those behind the curtains. We have people like Nike. Uh, what, what we're seeing, Shannon, is we're seeing the result of decades of, of, of leftists teaching our kids that are now running the show. You have these folks on, the, on boards of Nike, uh, wherever they might be, across the board, that uh, either, they're, either they're clueless in terms of what we're fighting against, which is Marxism or they're complicit. I personally think if they're complicit because it really is about the dollar bill. With Nike and NFL, just remember this, it's all about China. It's all about China. They want to make sure they get there and make sure they get their billions of dollars from 1.6 billion dollars of uh, people versus the 300 million people here in, in America. They know their revenue is going down here. They need to, to get a bigger place. So if, if we understand the bigger picture, Leftists care about power and, and money more than American patriotism. If we remember that, we'll know who our enemy is. And that, again, the Democrats, Independents, and Republicans can come together and realize we're fighting for our culture, our future, and our kids. And that means we're on the same team. And we're against those who fight against it, which is the leftists that we're now, Marxists, that are now seem to be running the show in so many corporations today. Man, I love it. Burgess Owens, of course, uh, former NFL great. Uh, he's actually a great guy, too. I, I'm, I'm dropping names here. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I had the privilege of helping uh, produce he and Stan Ellsworth's radio show for some time. And just uh, I think he's got a good take on this. And especially having been in the NFL, I think he he, he sees it pretty clearly. And, I, you know, this goes beyond the NFL, too. You listen to the names of these corporate sponsors. And, you know, uh, Levi Strauss, for instance, you know, I, I grew up wearing the 501 jeans. I mean, if I wasn't so dang fat, I'd still love to, to, to wear my Levi's. But Levi Strauss is extremely anti-gun. And so, you know, I don't I don't look for reasons to go boycott every company. But there are some companies that have aligned themselves with political causes and with with uh, social causes that I'm like, yeah, that's uh, that's something I just can't do. 
And so I've had to kind of step back and and decide whether or not I can I can in good conscience spend my money with them. Now, I, I warn you. Be careful, because if, if you start down that road, I mean, I know people who, who literally will sit there and, well, that looks like a good movie, but let me check the uh, IMBD or IMDB cast, you know, and make sure there's nobody in there who has ever uttered an opinion that I disagree with. Okay, that's getting a little bit too nitpicky and actually will take so much of your time and so much of your life. It's hardly worth it. But nonetheless, the changes are happening fast and you think you may be able to sit this one out or you may be able to safely blend into the crowd and nobody's going to, you know, pressure you one way or the other. I don't think that's the case anymore. There's a lot changing here. You are going to have to choose. Are you going to stand on the side of freedom and free expression? Or are you going to knuckle under? And that's not a choice I can make for you. The only thing I can do is encourage you, be strong. Just remember that uh, the pressure that's being brought to bear is a small but very well-organized minority. It's not how everybody feels. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the show. I'm happy that you have found your way to a place where we can gather as people who've accepted the truth that we are not sheep. You know, as you look around, it's not hard to see that there is definitely a uh, revolutionary fervor sweeping the streets of America right now. And I don't say that lightly. I mean, it's uh, to me, with, with my limited understanding of history, I think what we are seeing is uh, absolutely a little... Um, uprising of revolutionaries trying to destabilize and overthrow the existing system, you know, for the purpose. They say it's for social justice, but um, it, it looks like good old fashioned Marxism. The closer I look, the more their tactics and their their mantra is consistent with uh, what uh, Marxists and other totalitarians historically have done. Now, I don't know what their chances are of succeeding. Frankly, they have been tolerated and things have been shifted to the point where, you know, I got to choose my words carefully here. Decent, productive people who just want to live their lives, who aren't oppressing anybody, but just want to be left alone to to live their lives. We find ourselves in a position where it's actually more costly to follow the law than it would be to break the law. And and I say that in on behalf of like the people who are just driving down the road and suddenly find their way blocked by a street full of protesters. It's not like they can just sit in their car and quietly wait for the protesters to march on by and, you know, uh, play out chanting whatever they're going to do. These protesters are trained to escalate, to start pounding on the car, to jump on the car, start breaking windows, to try to elicit some kind of a reaction, any reaction from the driver that can then be used to justify, you know, turning into an angry mob, breaking the windows, dragging them out of the car. They Literally, I just saw a video two days ago of uh, one of one of these uh, revolutionaries showing her cohorts this is how to break a car window this is how to cut the seat belt and pull the driver out why would they do that i mean what's the purpose right it's to it's to cause stuff and when when they, they get hit by cars or people trying to flee i try really hard to feel sympathy or even a degree of empathy for those who are injured but considering it was their bad choices and it was their lethally aggressive behavior that set things in motion, I'm having a really tough time drumming up even a, a molecule of sympathy for them. I mean, look at the, the homeowners in St. Louis 
who went out and confronted the mob that was marching on their private street, trespassing on their property, threatening them. And this couple went out there with guns and basically waved them on, move on. Well, now the police have stepped in at the behest of the DA. They've executed a search warrant. They've taken the guns away from this couple. And the couple says, uh, the McCloskeys is their name, they say that they are imminently expecting to be indicted. Now, granted, there's some there's smarter ways that they could have done what they did. If you put me on that jury, though, there is no way that I would ever vote to convict them of aggravated assault or any other crime against anybody else. They were defending their property and the mob that was coming into their property that had broken a gate in order to get in was not there to bring them, you know, the welcome wagon basket or otherwise, you know, to sing Christmas carols or something like that. They were there to agitate, to cause trouble, to fight, to confront, and to destroy if they could get away with it. And the presence of firearms in the hands of private citizens who did not have police protection at that time were enough to deter them. And yet, those who are charged with upholding the law, they're coming after the citizens. Do you see the point I'm trying to make here? We're getting to a point where uh, being a good law-abiding citizen is a good way to find yourself burned out, beat up, stabbed, shot, murdered by the mob. And you're expected to take it. Why? Well, because social justice demands it. So to say there's a revolutionary fervor, yeah, I don't think it's an exaggeration. But it does raise a question here. What the chances are for success, I don't know. But I do want to know, why do some revolutions fail when others succeed? The American Revolution, you know, we we speak of with reverence. Heck, we celebrate it every July 4th. And I think most of us would argue the outcome was a good one. Now, the French Revolution, which kicked off on July 14th, 1789, eh, not, uh, not so good. It turned into a bloodbath led by the bloodthirsty Jacobins. And frankly, I think we have their modern day counterparts setting up in our midst today to the point where I'm trying to think, who was it? Isaac Morehouse, one of the most gentle, talented and, and inspirational guys that I can think of. He was on Fox News last night talking about how to build a career without a college degree. And one of the comments that was given him was, we're coming for you. Get ready for the guillotine. Now, it may just be somebody spouting off, but that is indicative of the mindset that has taken hold. And that's exactly what drove the French Revolution. This righteous fury, we cannot be wrong, off with their heads. Joseph LeConte, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, says, soon after the start of the French Revolution, English statesman Edmund Burke saw storm clouds on the horizon under the banner of liberty, equality, and fraternity. The French revolutionaries not only attacked the dreaded Bastille prison in Paris, they assaulted the most important historic institutions in France, the monarchy, the aristocracy, and the Christian religion. In his reflections on the revolution in France, Burke warned of political revolutions that despise everything that came before them, saying, people will not look forward to posterity who never look backward to their ancestors. Now, Joseph Leconte says, we know the rest of the story. Barely a decade after executing their hated monarch and after years of political instability, social chaos and the remorseless violence of the guillotine, the freedom-loving revolutionaries installed an emperor to replace him. Napoleon Bonaparte, dictator for life, would plunge continental Europe into war. 
Near the heart of America's cultural crisis today is a failure to grasp the profound differences between the two great revolutions for freedom in the 18th century, between the events of 1776 and those of 1789. Intoxicated by lofty visions of an egalitarian society, the revolutionaries in Paris took a wrecking ball to the institutions and traditions that had shaped France for centuries. Virtually nothing, including the religion that guided the lives of most of their fellow citizens, was sacrosanct. We must smother the internal and external enemies of the Republic, warned Maximilien Robespierre, or perish with them. Their list of enemies, past and present, was endless. Now, the men who signed the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia, by contrast, did not share this rage against inherited authorities. Although the Americans, in the words of James Madison, did not suffer from a blind veneration for antiquity, neither did they reject the political and cultural inheritance of Great Britain and the Western tradition. They did not seek to invent rights, but rather to reclaim their chartered rights as Englishmen. From both classical and religious sources, the American founders understood that human passions made freedom a vulnerable state of affairs. Political liberty demanded the restraints of civic virtue and biblical religion. The French revolutionaries took a different view. Paul Henry Thierry, Baron de Holbach, one of the most influential French philosophers of his day, spoke for many, To learn the true principles of morality, men have no need of theology, of revelation, or gods. They have only need of reason. They have only to enter into themselves to reflect upon their own nature and consult their sensible interests. Now, Joseph Lacante says, Lacante says this uh, sanguine and thoroughly secular view of human, human nature underwrote the French political protest. In their democratic society, all of the base and cruel passions would be enchained, while all the sentiments of generosity and brotherhood would be awakened by the laws. The revolutionaries sang an anthem to political utopianism, the likes of which had never before been heard in Europe. The Americans rejected it as dangerous nonsense. Instead, the founders, living in a society animated by Protestant Christianity, led a hopeful but deeply sober they held a hopeful but deeply sober view about the prospects for Republican self-government. Benjamin Franklin captured the essence of it when emerging from the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, he was asked what kind of government the framers were delivering to the American people. A republic, he said, if you can keep it. A major concern of the Federalist Papers, perhaps the most significant reflection on the nature of political societies ever written, is the problem of human self-interest, the threat of factions, what we would call tribalism, weighed heavily on their minds. Though defending, along with John Jay and Alexander Hamilton, the American Constitution, Madison identified factions as the mortal disease of popular government. Quote, the latent causes of faction are thus sown in the nature of man. So strong is this propensity of mankind to fall into mutual animosities that where no substantial occasion presents itself, the most frivolous and fanciful distinctions have been sufficient to, re to kindle their unfriendly passions and excite their most violent conflicts. End quote. So there's the most challenging aspect of any democratic revolution, preserving freedom over the long haul. A sound constitution, embodying concepts like limited government, separation of powers, and equal justice under the law, is essential. But good political leadership is also important, and so is civic virtue. The capacity to govern oneself and to work for the common good. And by the way, for that, the founders believed democracies needed the moral ballast of religious belief. We'll come back to this just the other side of these messages. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, thanks once again for making this part of your daily routine. I am so happy to be able to uh, share a little bit of time with you every day. And look, if you get the chance... If you find value in the different essays that I share with you, the different observations and thoughts, the guests that I have, I would ask you, please open your mouth and tell somebody you know who likewise is just looking for encouragement, wants to maybe take a break from the red state, blue state tug of war and and focus on the principles that are at stake. And most of all, understand the world as it's uh, as it's uh, unfolding around us and understand what we can do as individuals to be an influence for good. I've been sharing with you an article here from intellectualtakeout.org. This is Why Some Revolutions Fail by Joseph Leconte. And he hearkens back to, to the French Revolution as well as the American Revolution and gives a very solid differentiation between these two revolutions. Why did one turn out to be such a bloody, horrific mess while the other set in motion the greatest experiment in personal freedom and liberty and limited government that the world had ever seen. And this may be uncomfortable for some, because I know not everybody is a religious believer, but the founding generation really believed if you wanted to be a free nation, you had to have the moral ballast of religious belief. In fact, in his farewell address as president, for example, George Washington took a swipe at the French philosophies saying, whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in the exclusion of religious principle. Now, look, he wasn't advocating for a theocracy. He wasn't advocating for a you know, marriage of church and government. What he was acknowledging was that if you have large groups of people, if there is a mass of people to whom you need to impart moral truth... Traditionally, religion is the best vehicle to do that because participation in it is entirely voluntary. Now, Reverend John Witherspoon, the only minister to sign the Declaration of Independence, reinforced the prevailing view that he is the best friend to American liberty who is most sincere and active in promoting true and undefiled religion. And ironically, it was a Frenchman, Alexis de Tocqueville, who confirmed Burke's worst fears about the events in France. De Tocqueville wrote, because the revolution seemed to be striving for the regeneration of the human race even more than the reform of France, it lit a passion which the most violent political revolutions had never before been able to produce. And this zeal, he added, took on the appearance of a new kind of religion, without God, without ritual, and without life after death. And so Joseph Leconte says, thus in the American and French revolutions, we encounter starkly different journeys toward freedom. Two conflicting visions of human nature and the nature of political societies. A republic, if you can keep it, or the dawn of universal bliss. And herein lies the source of our current crisis. The willingness to trade the legacy of the American revolution for that of the French. What path will we take? Perhaps the welfare of the city of man really does depend, after all, on our belief in the city of God. Again, this is from Joseph Leconte. I will have it in the show notes. Please take a look at it and see what you think. Share it if you think that it is worthwhile. All right, moving on. You're hearing rumors, and I'm hearing rumors, too, that Lockdown 2.0 
is becoming a reality. And it does appear California just went into another uh, pronounced state of lockdown. Michael Snyder, writing for the economiccollapse.com blog, says that uh, this new wave of lockdowns will ensure the U.S. remains in an economic depression through the 2020 election. And I don't want to sound cynical, but gee, who could that possibly help if it's if it manages to, to keep the economy depressed? I think traditionally it uh, does not help the incumbent, but perhaps this is a story for another time. Michael Snyder says another wave of lockdowns has begun, and that is really bad news for the U.S. economy. The first wave of lockdowns resulted in the permanent closing of more than 100,000 U.S. businesses, colossal lines at food banks around the nation, and the loss of tens of millions of jobs. Needless to say, this new wave of lockdowns will make things even worse, and some are speculating that that's precisely what the Democrats want. If the U.S. economy continues to fall apart as we approach the election in November, the thinking is that this will make President Trump look bad and will make it more likely that people will cast votes for Democrats. But there is also the possibility this could backfire in a huge way for the left if millions of Americans start to identify Democrats as the party of the lockdowns. That could actually help President Trump in November. He says at this point, the battle lines are becoming quite clear. President Trump and other top Republicans are strongly against lockdowns, or at least more lockdowns. But Democratic politicians in many areas of the country are starting to institute them anyway. In fact, we just learned that all schools in Los Angeles, San Diego, Atlanta, and Nashville will be closed at the beginning of the new school year. Other major cities are expected to follow suit. Of course, considering the quality of the education in most of our public schools, he says most of those kids won't exactly be missing much, but... Ultimately, closing down the schools won't have that large of an economic impact, but shutting down most of the businesses in the largest state certainly will. On Monday, California Governor Gavin Newsom announced a comprehensive lockdown for 30 California counties, accounting for about 80 percent of California's population. This is a quote from the the linked news article. Newsom, a Democrat, announced that during a press briefing that all bars across the state must close up shop and that restaurants, wineries, tasting rooms, family entertainment centers, zoos, museums, and card rooms must suspend indoor activities. The governor also announced that all gyms, places of worship, malls, personal care services, barbershops, salons, barbershops rather, salons, and non-critical offices in counties on the state's monitoring list had to shut down under the new order. That order affects more than 30 counties, which are home to about 80% of California's population. Now, Michael Snyder says Newsom is a political opportunist, and he says, I guarantee you he wouldn't be doing this unless he truly believed it would help Democrats in November. But he says, I think that Newsom and other top Democrats have greatly underestimated how much the American people detest COVID-19 restrictions at this point. We've been witnessing a huge backlash all over the country. And even though California is far more liberal than most states, backlash has been brewing there as well. He says if the Democrats are not very careful, they're going to lose an election that they could have easily won. First of all, he says they never should have nominated Joe Biden. It's obvious to everyone that he's physically and mentally declining at a very rapid pace, and videos of him acting creepy will be viewed millions upon millions of times over the coming months. Democrats have known about Biden's creepy behavior for many years, but they decided to give the nomination to him anyway. Secondly, He says most top Democrats have refused to strongly denounce the rioting, looting, and violence that have happened around the nation. 
and that's going to push a whole lot of people toward the Republicans. Thirdly, the backlash against these new lockdowns is going to be directed primarily toward Democrats. If Democratic politicians push too far, this will be an issue that deeply hurts them in November. But he says, despite all of these mistakes, it is possible that the Democrats could still come out on top because Trump and the Republicans are making lots of political mistakes as well. If Trump wants to make a comeback in the polls, he really needs to fully embrace an anti-lockdown message because that would strongly resonate with tens of millions of voters. The first wave of lockdown certainly didn't stop the spread of the virus. And more lockdowns will not stop it from spreading either. And now three separate scientific studies have shown that COVID-19 antibodies disappear very, very rapidly. And that means a vaccine is not going to end this crisis. And we will never reach a point of herd immunity. So we're going to have to find a way to function effectively as this virus circulates around the globe year after year because it isn't going away. But he says we simply cannot shut down the economy every time the number of cases starts to surge again. The damage we've already done to the U.S. economy has been incalculable. And now these new lockdowns will do even more damage. But the World Health Organization insists that new restrictions are needed. Let me be blunt. Too many countries are headed in the wrong direction. The virus remains public enemy number one. World Health Organization Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus told a virtual briefing from the U.N. agency's headquarters in Geneva. If basics are not followed, the only way this pandemic is going to go, it is going to get worse and worse and worse. So what would the World Health Organization have us do? Would they like us to all lock ourselves in our homes indefinitely? They keep touting a future vaccine, but if COVID-19 antibodies disappear after just a few months, there's no way a vaccine is going to end this pandemic. And many Americans will never, ever take a COVID-19 vaccine under any circumstances. We can't keep adding to the national debt. We can't keep locking the economy down. Michael Snyder says we just can't keep doing this. No matter what we do, COVID-19 is going to keep spreading. And we're going to have to learn how to deal with this virus for a very long time to come. More lockdowns are definitely not the answer. But unfortunately, many of our politicians are convinced otherwise. So U.S. economic conditions will continue to deteriorate. And the economic depression that began earlier this year will continue through the end of 2020 and beyond. That is bad news, by the way, but at least you and I have the option of preparing ourselves as best we can. Hunker down. Stormy seas are ahead. This is The Brian Hyde Show.